the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes about a new idea that was previously unknown. It was a mystery. This mystery was that Jewish and Gentile believers would be unified. Today, we seek to ask and answer the question, what is the one new man? Listening to the Tove Podcast. Welcome to the Tove Podcast. My name's Levi Hazen. I have the privilege of being your co-host for today. My colleague and good friend, Wes Tabor, joins us. Wes, welcome back to the Tove Podcast. Thanks, Levi. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm really glad you're here for this discussion on the one new man as we take a look at the book of Ephesians, uh, specifically chapter 2, and the concept of the one new man. Our plan is to walk through this part of the chapter with the goal to properly understand the text. First, a bit of background. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to believers in the region of Asia Minor somewhere around 60 AD. The themes of Paul's letter include the unity of believers, life and ethics within the community, the Messiah's exalted state, our position in Messiah as believers, and the spiritual battle that every believer finds him or herself a part of. Wes, eventually we want to get to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, which uses the phrase, one new man. But before we get there, let's take a look at what Paul has already taught leading up to chapter 2, verse 15. What do we see Paul teaching thus far? Sure. Well, this is very definitely a Pauline epistle. He starts out, as he always does, by introducing himself. Often he refers to himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. Here he's writing to Gentile believers, and he just calls himself an apostle of Messiah Jesus, by the will of God. Interestingly, Paul's writing to believers that he's never met. Uh, Verse 15 says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul's praying for this church, these believers, uh, but it's in a city that he's not been to before, Mm. which I think just adds Uh, interest to this passage, the depth of what he feels for them and what he's praying and what he wants to to reveal to them. Uh, And you mentioned the mystery that Jews and Gentiles would be made one in Messiah. Mm -hmm. Well, he's already introduced the idea of mystery in chapter 1, verse 9, where he talks about the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Messiah. Mm-hmm. So he's got a view to the future. He's talking about what the prophetic end of the, t- of the church age is going to be. And he's talked about the sovereignty of God. I love verse 11 of chapter 1. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Mm. So right from the very beginning, Paul is talking about God's sovereignty in this plan. This is not 
uh, an early church council got together and decided what the church should look like. This is God's plan. And from before the foundation of the world, mm. this is what God had in mind when he planned to send the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Mm-hmm. In fact, he exalts the Lord in beginning of verse 20, what Messiah has done. When God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You know, this would be a a great crescendo for a benediction at the end of a letter. And Paul front loads it. He puts it right in chapter one, uh, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. Uh, All things are put in subjection under his feet. And he's the head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Mm. So already at the end of chapter one, He's exalting the Lord, who is the head of the church, and then he's going to further uh, define who the members of the body of Messiah are in chapter 2. Okay, very good. Yeah, and then chapter 2, he begins talking to his audience about the fact that you, you Gentiles, were dead in your trespasses and sins, Yeah, and delineates uh, what life was like for non-believers and the lusts of the flesh and the mm-hmm. desires of the mind and by nature children of wrath and so forth. And then again, exalting God who is rich in mercy, uh, who has raised us up, made us alive and seated us in the heavenly places in Messiah. Mm-hmm. And then those famous verses that are most often quoted probably from the whole book of Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith, mm. that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Yeah, but there's a reason why those are the most often quoted verses from Ephesians, because that is just so crucial that we've been given a gift of salvation. We cannot earn it. It is God's gift bestowed upon us. We are so undeserving of being saved and brought in from the kingdom of darkness, dead dead in our trespasses and made alive, brought into the kingdom of light. We just can't take credit for that. It doesn't matter how many good works we do. It doesn't matter if our good outweighs our bad, which nearly every religious system teaches, Wes. Exactly right. And uh, our good friend, uh, Dr. Seth Postel, uh, has said many a time, hey, we're saved by works, but it's not our own works. It's the works that have already been accomplished by the Messiah. His works are what's sufficient to bring us everlasting life. None of our works. In fact, the book of Isaiah tells us that our works are like filthy rags before the Lord. We can't do enough good works to somehow attain credibility with God. He's got to bring us credibility on his own terms, and he's done that through the Messiah. Absolutely right. And grace is the word that distinguishes Christianity from religion. Every religion, as you said, is here's the ladder that I climb, here's who God is and how I get to him by my own efforts and the gospel is exactly the opposite yeah it's not by works of righteousness which we've done but according to his mercy that he saved us that's right by grace and that hebrew word for grace is well chesed is the unmerited favor of of god it's his outpoured love for us if you think about undeserved unearned god oriented god initiated love Loving kindness, that's what chesed is for us. Yeah, what a wonderful concept. And 
Was that one of the five Hebrew words you covered when you hosted the Tove podcast with uh, <laughs> Melissa Briggs? Yeah, we had fun doing that. Yeah, uh, folks haven't heard that. They ought to check it out. Yeah, you can check that out on our uh, lifeandmessiah.org or Spotify or iTunes. It's called Five Hebrew Words That Every Christian Should Know. And uh, of course, uh, Melissa Briggs does a wonderful job of bringing us those five words. She's really an expert, got a good handle on the Hebrew language. And um, chesed is that unmerited favor. Well, Wes, let's transition to verse 15 of chapter 2. He uses the phrase, Paul, that is, one new humanity. So what I'm going to do here is start in verse 11 so that we get the context of 15. Beginning in verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, quote, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, end quote. Wes, here in verses 11 and 12, we see that Messiah moves Gentiles, those who believe, from a place of alienation without the Messiah to a place of reconciliation. Before Israel's long-awaited Messiah arrived on the scene in a tiny backwater village called Bethlehem, the Gentiles, which you and I, and probably most of our listeners out there, oh no, we do have some Jewish people listening, the Gentiles were in a terrible plight. Yes, there were some Gentiles who recognized that the God of Israel was the only God, and he was deserving of their worship and obedience. But by and large, the vast majority of Gentiles were idol worshipers of some sort. Before Messiah's work was accomplished, Gentiles were alienated from God and the Jewish people as well. But now, through Messiah, there's unification of both Jewish and Gentile believers in a new entity called the Church. Writing in the Moody Bible Commentary, Dr. Gerald Peterman notes the following, quote, Paul reminds Gentile believers of this past plight so that they might better understand their present blessings. You see, it's the inclination of our hearts and minds to forget where we've come from and to forget what God has done for us. I'm no exception to this reality. I often need reminding from God and from others of where God has brought me, what he's graciously done for me. Many of us are very much aware of what God has done for us personally or even at a family level. We recount our personal testimonies quite well and rightly tell others how God transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Our stories of testimony are worth telling for sure. But Wes, how many of us Gentile believers have ever thought about where we've come from on a collective level? It was not until I was really in my late 20s that somebody challenged me to think about what we Gentiles as a whole have received from God and from the Jewish people. It had not previously occurred to me that God used the Jewish people not only to bring his Messiah into the world, but to pen and preserve the scriptures as well, and to be his chosen instruments in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles all over the world, like the Apostle Paul here in the book of Ephesians. It was Jewish disciples and apostles that risked and gave their lives to get the message of their Messiah into Gentile communities all over the world. What's the proper response from Gentile believers, Wes? Well, first of all, we ought to have uh, 
strong sense of gratitude to the Lord that his love and grace reached to us. Sometimes I think may have the idea that somehow we deserve God's love, mm. but Scripture tells us the opposite, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right. I think in my own life of the fact that I wasn't really running toward God, he was chasing after me. You know, when I teach this Ephesians 2 passage, I like to go back to Romans chapter 9. Ephesians 2, Paul talks about what the Gentiles don't have, mm. right? We're strangers and aliens. We're not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, Ephesians 2, Paul describes what we don't have. You might think in terms of opening up a a treasure chest and finding that there's nothing in it, Mm. or there's nothing of value in there, or even worse, that everything that's in there is toxic and is a detriment to you. Contrast that with Paul's description in Romans 9 of the treasure chest that belongs to the Jewish people. Mm. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all. Mm -hmm. So the treasure chest is overflowing with blessings that God poured out upon the Jewish people. Mm. And Ephesians 2 Paul says, yeah, but Gentiles, none of that belonged to you. Mm. It was not your inheritance. Right. And look, we have, we have clear indications that God has a heart for the Gentiles in the Old Covenant as well. You have the story of Jethro, who is a priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, who says, now I know that Jehovah Yahweh is the true and living God. You have Rahab. You have Ruth. I mean, these ladies are in the lineage of Messiah. So not only were they welcomed into the commonwealth of Israel, but they became a part of the heritage of Messiah, the lineage of Messiah himself. So we don't want to give the impression that God loves the Jewish people in the Old Testament and hates the Gentiles and then all of a sudden changes his mind. Right. It's always been God's plan to include the Gentiles. But as far as spiritual heritage is concerned— you know, our forebears, Levi, were worshiping gods of wood and stone, or the sun, moon, and stars. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was our spiritual heritage. So, first of all, concerning our proper response toward God, we're to give thanks for his graciousness, his love, his forgiveness, and then go on to offer our entire lives as a sacrifice for what he's done for us and will do for us. Toward the Jewish people, Wes, we should also be grateful. Amen. Uh, thankful to and for them as a community. And we also need to be loving toward the Jewish community, both Jewish believers in Jesus, as well as those who don't yet believe. The scriptures are very clear that God is actively working among the Jewish people today, and God wants us to do the same, sharing the gospel, standing against anti-Semitism, helping other believers to understand the Jewish roots of our faith. In fact, perhaps you're listening today, and um, you'd love to have a Life and Messiah representative at your church or small group. Uh, don't hesitate to get in contact with us. That's why we're here, to serve. Uh, just send us a short note via our website about how we can best serve you, and we'll do our best to send a well-trained, qualified staff member uh, to teach on a topic of your choice. Well, Wes, this brings us to verses 13 through 18 of Ephesians chapter 2. And in these verses, here's where we read the phrase, the one new man. And we want to explain this. Verses 13 through 18 say the following, quote, But now, 
in Messiah Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. End quote. In verse 13, Wes, Paul says Gentiles, quote, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. I think what this means is that Gentiles have now been brought near to God, whereas previously we were alienated. Yeah, without hope and without God in the world is how he describes us. Yeah, that's how he describes it. So verse 13, pretty easy to understand. Let's move on to verse 14. Paul says both groups. Now, what groups are we talking about here? Well, God divides the world into two. There are the nations and the nation, Mm. right? So the goyim, the nations, are everyone who is not a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the nation, his chosen nation, are the Jewish people. Yeah. And in verse 14, Paul says both of these groups, both Jewish and Gentile believers, are now one. This means that Jewish believers and Gentile believers are united. They are unified in their belief in the Messiah. Both Jewish and Gentile believers are one group. Then Paul says this happened by Messiah's work to, quote, tear down the wall of hostility. So first we know there was a wall of hostility between Jewish and Gentile people. For if one is torn down, it must have been there to begin with. But it's gone now. What is that wall of hostility, Wes? Well, I think he's talking about the law, the law of commandments contained in ordinances is what he says in verse 15. Right. uh, Because the law was given by God at Mount Sinai to Israel, and it was to set them aside, King James says, as a peculiar people, Mm. uh, but a people set aside from from the nations. Sometimes we wonder what was the purpose behind some of the laws that God gave to Israel. We may not know a scientific explanation for some of them, but for sure they made Israel a peculiar people, a people set aside from the nations. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes the law is also called the law of Moses. Other times it's referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. It just depends on what lingo is being used. But either way, we're referring here uh, to the law of Moses given to Israel. Just two weekends ago, Wes, I was invited to address a small group at uh, Sugar Grove Church in Goshen, Indiana. We had a wonderful time together discussing God's heart for the Jewish people and what the Bible teaches. One topic that arose was the different covenants of the Bible and how the Mosaic Law was just one of several covenants in the Bible. The Hebrew Bible, usually referred to as the Old Testament, is not just full of one covenant. Rather, the Hebrew Bible consists of multiple covenants, and all of them are unconditional except for the Mosaic Covenant. Now, Wes, here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that Jesus has, quote, made no effect of the law. 
We read the same in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 13, where it says, quote, By saying new covenant, he has declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear, end quote. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the distinctions between the old covenant, that's the Mosaic law, and the new covenant, I encourage you to listen to the Tove podcast's most downloaded episode called Old vs. New, Distinctions Between the Covenants. You can find that at lifeandmessiah.org or anywhere else you get your podcasts. The law of Moses, Wes, had made a barrier between Jews and Gentiles in the past. But now, as we read, that dividing wall of hostility is gone. It's been torn down by Messiah's shed blood. This group is now called the one new man. That's what it says here in verse 15, which you just referenced. Quote, He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. This one new man is another name for the church. Well, we're going to discuss this when we come back on the Tove podcast after a quick break. Since 1887, Life and Messiah has helped Christians understand the Jewish roots of our faith and God's ongoing commitment to His people. We teach that anti-Semitism is inconsistent with biblical faith, and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which includes her spiritual renewal as well as physical safety. In all we do, our priority is to share the gospel message. Connect with us at lifeandmessiah.org. That's lifeandmessiah.org. Welcome back to the Tove Podcast. I'm here with my colleague Wes Tabor, and we are studying Ephesians chapter 2. We just read verse 15, which says that God has established an entity called the one new man. What does Paul mean here? Wes? Well, I'm struck by the fact that the word one is repeated. Uh, Verse 14, he talks about two groups being made into one. And in verse 15, he talks about one new man. And in verse 16, he says, uh, reconciling them both in one body to God through the cross. Mm -hmm. And I think in each of these cases, he's talking about the same thing, that what was once separate is now united. In 1 Corinthians, I think Paul says, uh, don't give offense either to Jews, to Gentiles, or to the church of God. Mm. So I like to think in terms of Venn diagrams. Mm -hmm. So you're born Jewish or you're born Gentile, right? And then you're born again and you're born into the family of faith, and that's one body comprised of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. So the one new man is this new entity. And and when Paul talks about it being a mystery, you can see the struggle that it was for the early church. The first church council was called in Acts chapter 15 to try to figure out what do we do with these Gentiles yeah. who are now coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah? Do they have to become part of the commonwealth of Israel? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to take on the Mosaic Code in order to be fully part of the body of Messiah. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what Paul deals with here and, and in the book of Galatians. Yeah. It's so strange how after 2,000 years of church history, the world and the devil has completely flipped things on their head so that in Acts chapter 15, the question was, what do we do with these Gentiles? It was not natural for Gentiles to align themselves with one of the world's smallest groups of people, a very small nation called Israel, It was not natural for Gentiles to be followers of monotheism. And an invisible God. Yeah, an invisible God. 
it just wasn't natural. And so in Acts chapter 15, they're wrestling with what do we do with this influx of people that really haven't shown an interest before? Unfortunately, Wes, by the fourth century, Gentiles far outnumbered our Jewish friends, and we started to forget about the Jewish roots of our faith and where we've come from. That's one of the great tragedies, I think, in history. I often wonder how different would it have been if the church had honored our Jewish roots, valued the Jewish people as God does, um, and prayed for the salvation of those who are of the line of Abraham, but not of Abraham's faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wes, in verse 17, it says this, When the Messiah came, he proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Now, here, you who were far away is a reference to the Gentiles, and those who were near is a reference to the Jewish people. Why is it that Paul says the Jewish people were near? Why would he say that? Well, I think it's because of that rich treasure chest that he talks about in Romans 9. All those advantages that the Jewish people had, the covenants, the promises, the patriarchs. The scriptures. Yes. Yeah. What God had given to them, and God made himself known to Israel in a very special way. At Mount Sinai, you know, in the wilderness with the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day, the very dwelling presence of God within the camp of Israel. Yeah. So God was near to the Jewish people in ways that he was not to the Gentiles. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to wrap things up pretty soon here, but the, the main essence of this one new man is this. By believing in the Messiah— a person changes their position or orientation toward God. Right. Through him, we have access. Yeah, exactly. Without the Messiah, Gentiles are described as being foreign citizens and strangers. But with belief in the Messiah, Gentiles are described as being fellow citizens and members of God's household. Gentiles, Wes, are partakers. What a wonderful thing. It's a blessing. But notice... Gentiles are not overtakers. Right. To believe that believing Gentiles now overtake Israel's promises or their role in God's program is to miss the point of what Paul is saying in Ephesians and to disagree wholeheartedly with his teaching in Romans. Well, Wes, thanks so much for joining us on the Tove Podcast today. We've really appreciated your input here on this discussion of the One New Man. Thanks for the invitation. Always good to be with you and the Toe Podcast audience. Yeah. And how about you, dear listener? Have you joined the one new man through a personal relationship with Israel's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth? If not, I invite you to take that step of faith today by believing, by placing your faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Hebrew Bible. Perhaps you're not ready to do that yet, and you have some questions about Jesus or what it is that Christians believe. Why not head on over to InSearchOfShalom.com, interact with our articles, watch a few video testimonials, or even chat with someone anonymously. Typically, we have someone on standby, ready to pray with you or chat. Until next time on the Tove Podcast, Shalom. Shalom.